I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today on What Got You There, I sit down with Emmy Award-winning ABC News correspondent Diane Macedo. But that's not the only thing Diane does. Diane's actually the author of the new book, The Sleep Fix, where she talks about her battles with, with sleep and all of the research she uncovered and she did to learn all the techniques we can use to get better night's sleep. And it's one of those super complicated topics, and the amount of research Diane did for this is really fascinating. So this episode, we, you can kind of view it in three different parts. The first part, we talk a lot about Diane's journalism and news career and, and what it takes to succeed on camera, what she's done well, how she's learned, what mindsets she uses to succeed in her field. And then we get into why and how she developed her sleep issues, which in large part is because of the, the crazy schedule she had while on the news. And then the third part of the episode is what we cover into the actual sleep tactics, ways we can get better night's sleep, the effects of alcohol and cannabis on our sleep, all of these different things we uncover on this episode. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Diane Macedo. Anyone who's interested in investing in high-end art, I think you're going to want to listen up to the latest support of the podcast, and that's the company Masterworks. And Masterworks is an online investment platform valued at over a billion dollars. And they give everyone like you and me an opportunity to invest in high-end art. And when I say high-end art, I'm thinking about Picasso, Warhol, or Banksy. And this is an opportunity for all of us to get in on investments and potentially build generational wealth. And if you think about contemporary art, it has actually outpaced the S&P 500 by almost threefold from 1995 to 2020. And what Masterworks understands and what they do is they actually understand that investing high in art is really hard. And most of the time, you have to sell a major tech company or ransack a museum in order to have the ability to invest in these pieces. And what Masterworks does is they buy a piece of art, and then they file it, the work with SEC, sort of like filing for a public company IPO. And then we can buy shares representing an investment in that painting. And so Masterworks holds the piece, and when they sell, we would get a prorated portion of the profit. And I know people invested in Masterworks, and some of these early adopters saw a 32% return on a Banksy sale in 2020. So if you're interested in diversifying your investment portfolio and investing in high-end art, I think you'll want to check out Masterworks. So go to masterworks.io slash what got you there to get priority access to their exclusive community. Once again, that's masterworks.io slash what got you there. You can also see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. 
Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Diane, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled about this one. I mean, this, this is one of those really fun, interesting conversations where we cover a few different things and then some of the topics that you've spent a ton of time uh, learning about on yourself. So it's like hitting on a lot of things I'm really intrigued by. But obviously, we just hit record. I'm always intrigued. Just before you go on live TV, like 10 seconds before, what's going on in your mind? Before I go on live television? Yep. I'm usually just running through my head of whatever like the last script was that I read and probably picking out things that I wish I had more time to fix. Um, But that's more, I guess, the minute before 10 seconds before there's something about live television that it just kind of clears my head. And that's one of the things that I love about doing live events. There's just something about it that puts me in the zone. Oh, that's so interesting. Was that even early in your career or is that something that was almost muscle memory got the build up over time? Um, I think earlier in my career, it was more sheer panic and now (laughs) it's more excitement, but a calm kind of excitement rather than uh, terror. (laughs) Interesting. I I know you've dealt with a a ton of different scenarios. What what about those scenarios where like things go entirely off script? What's going on for you where like you're maintaining your composure on TV but then you're obviously like trying to think about how you're going to handle the situation. I'm just wondering what that what the internal dialogue is like for someone who's ha- who has to handle that. It's hard to describe, really. Uh, I think I'm sure every anchor who has to do that kind of kind of breaking news off script coverage has a different description. Uh, for me, I feel this strange combination of excitement and nervousness. And I, you know, I have all of these things going on in my head at once because I have someone talking in my ear often from the control room. My senior producer is keeping me updated on what new is going on uh, as we learn more and more about an unfolding um, new situation. I will often be checking my email and social media and any other outlets that I have so that I'm also trying to get the latest on whatever's going on. And I also frequently will have a guest on who is talking to me at the same time. And my priority often is on that guest. I want to hear what they're saying so I can actively respond. But I also have all these other things going on. And then, of course, there's the what the hell am I going to say after this person (laughs) stops talking element to it. Uh, And you just there's a certain element of surrender to it. I'm a bit of a control freak. And there's something in that mix That at some point you just kind of, I I can't think of a better word, you just kind of surrender to it and you just go with it. And that's usually when, for me, usually when I do my best. That is remember. uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I remember asking George Stephanopoulos right before we started the um, Derek Chauvin trial, the officer who was convicted of murdering George Floyd. We did gavel to gavel coverage on ABC News Live of that trial. And so I knew I was going to be on at some, sometimes for hours straight covering this, this event. And George uh, is a master at these kind of live events, particularly when it comes to um, political stories, but really 
in general, I think he's so incredibly good at it. And same with um, with David Muir at ABC. So I emailed um, both of them to ask for advice. Um, David just offered some really great words of encouragement, which I so appreciated. But George, I think, gave me a really good piece of advice. And he just said, you know, prepare as much as you can before you get to the event. But after that, just let it all go and do your best to just actively listen to everything that's going on. Essentially fight all my controlling instincts of wanting to, you know, keep track of this and keep track of that and make sure that person's doing this and make sure that's going to fire at the right time. And instead just listen to everything that's going around you, take it all in and just trust that all that preparation you did will pay off. And I thought it was, I thought it was great advice. I thought it was the exact advice that I needed because it's kind of contrary to my nature to just let go and trust. Uh, And, um, and that I think is part of the reason why I love that kind of coverage so much too. It kind of forces you to have to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the super interesting things though. Like, can you get to that place where you surrender and you still execute flawlessly without all that preparation? I'm even thinking years of preparation behind the camera, working with your scripts, things like that. Do you think you could just show up day one and be able to fully surrender like that and execute well? Or do you have to do all that pre-work for years prior? I mean, one, the flawlessly part, A, I'm still working on, and B, I think I was trying to give you some it. credit there. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Um, uh, I, I think part of it is, is also being okay with the fact that it's probably not going to be flawless. And that's actually better because sometimes when we're super polished, if you've rehearsed that thing over and over again, you may say it perfectly, but people can tell that you're reciting something that you really prepared. And I think viewers uh, identify much more with someone who's just speaking authentically. And so I think part of it is to surrender to the fact that it's not going to be flawless, which is difficult for me because I'm a perfectionist by nature. But in answer to your question, it probably depends on what you're covering, because sometimes there is no prep, right? When 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 a terrorist attack happens, there's no prep for that. You didn't know ahead of time that that was coming, as opposed to covering a trial where you know that's coming and you can prep. Um, so sometimes there is no prep and, and you just have to accept that you have to go with the knowledge that you have and, and that... Um, and that you're going to acquire throughout the course of covering this event. Hmm. That's really Um, interesting. That said, when you do have something you can prep for, like a trial, I don't think you can just jump into it cold and expect the same results. The same way, you know, we were probably all, especially those of us who work in the communications field, at some point showed up to class having not read the book, but you felt like if you listened (laughs) to enough people ask a few questions, you could jump into the discussion and pretend you read you read the book. Um, at the time, I thought I was nailing it. Now I wonder, like, how many of those professors just knew right off the bat, you did not read this book. Uh, and so I think if you try to fake it too much, the viewers will know. Um, and I, so I, I, I guess the key to it all is just authenticity as much as you can be authentic. Uh, But there is also something that comes with the experience, which is why I always look to those who have more experience than I do to ask them for for tips. But just that general body of knowledge, you can refer back to something that happened in history or something that happened even in recent news that maybe connects to what's happening now. 
And that just comes from the experience of covering it and, and paying attention to the events that are happening around you. That's not really something you can just be a quick study on necessarily. So it's a mix of everything. Yeah, you're hitting on some of the, the really intriguing things when we think about like developing skills or even trying to achieve a level of mastery. Like you, you understand the work that has to go in the reflection there to understand like where you actually are developing. But then you also have that beginner of mind where you mentioned even like reaching out to George or, or other people in the field who know more where you're willing to accept and learn from them as well. But then also at some point, like you just need to relax. You need to that authentic voice just to completely shine through. So these are all like really interesting things you're already hitting on. I'm wondering what else is going on behind the scenes. Like when you are prepping with scripts, things like that, like we only get to see what's happening on live TV. What are you doing behind the scenes in addition just to prepare? Uh, reading as much as I can. I often will have, if it's something that we can prep for, um, I'll have someone helping me. So there will be a junior producer, for example, who, you know, if we're covering um, an award show, let's say, I like entertainment as much as the next person, but I'm not really in it. I don't know all the key players. It's not, you know, it's not my jam. I don't read uh, Us Weekly at night. Um, but I have people who work on my team that do. So if we know someone is obsessed with golf and we're going to cover, you know, some big golf tournament, then that person will be assigned to kind of put together info sheets for me. Um, if I know someone is really into entertainment or music and we're covering the CMAs, then I'll pull this person who's, who I know is obsessed with country music to give me the color. And, and what I want in those circumstances often is not just this person's up for this award and, you know, this is going on. I kind of want the backstory, the kind of stuff, again, that I won't be able to just Google quickly and quick study on my own. Why is this person in the spotlight right now? What happened? What's this person's personal story that's interesting? Because those are the bits of color that you can pull during coverage that the audience might not know, but will keep them interested and make them interested in maybe a topic that they didn't think they would care about. And so as much as I can glean from the people around me, the personal touches they can put on the information that I can put together, that's what I want more than anything. Because I can't just Google that or read that on Wikipedia. Yeah. I'm wondering, just like even in the beginning, how did you first become interested in, in news and journalism? I think I've always had it in me. There's A, I'm I'm a natural performer. And, and I don't say that because I... I want to sound special in any way, but my mother will tell you about me singing in the kitchen, laying on the, we used to have these hideous rugs in our kitchen, like bath mats, but in the kitchen. Um, and I used to lay on them as like a three-year-old and just sing to myself, to my mom, to whoever, what, to entertain myself while my mother was cooking. When I was five, I was the lead in our school play. Um, I, there's just something about it where if I'm even now, I still sing in my spare time and I love doing it. But if you ask me in like an intimate moment with just a few friends to sing something to you, oh God, I want the floor to open up and swallow me. That sounds terrifying. But for some reason, put me on a stage, put me in a stadium and that I can do. And so there's, I don't know what I, I've heard people describe the the concept of being an introverted extrovert. Um, and maybe there's some element to that where when, when I'm in front of a large audience, there's, there's an element to feeling like I belong there maybe 
that calms me down. I don't know how to explain it. Um, and so I feel like I can explore a different side of myself in that kind of venue than when I'm just in kind of my everyday life one-on-one conversation. I, I want to dive back into that in a second, but we have to say, when you say you, you still sing, I mean, you're actually a ridiculously talented singer and you're not just singing oh, in the shower. You. So we'll, we're, we're going to link up some <laughs> of your performances because I, I was watching someone this morning again. And I'm just like, wow, you are very talented. It's just, it's very cool to see someone who's able to excel in many different fields. So I'm just like really intrigued by that. I, I am intrigued though. You're talking about kind of like feeling the, that introverted, extroverted, and then like having to, to come out of your shell a bit. What is that like where you've got to kind of like push through to enter a field journalism, which is just so competitive? Like how early on did you tap into those things that were really challenging for you and allow yourself to come out? Well, I kind of just realized I didn't fully answer your last question because I have a hard case of mom brain with a newborn at home. So forgive me if I ramble a little bit. Um, But that kind of goes into the answer to this question, I think, which is that in combination with that kind of love, of, that love of performing, I've also just had a real love of news and current events and especially kind of investigative journalism. Um, sitting at the dining table, we would talk about our day and, and lots of other things, but our parents would also talk to us about history, about current events, about, about things like that. I think my dad uh, particularly wanted, he found it important for us to be informed. And for us to be able to use that information to make our own opinions about what we thought about the world and how we wanted to impact it, as opposed to just going along with whatever the crowd was telling us or was doing. And I, so I think the, the, that combination of me just being the kind of person that preferred to read some, you know, op-ed or, or deep dive article on some current event that was happening, as opposed to wanting to read Us Weekly on the Beach you know, there's something in that that makes me tick. I'm a news junkie by nature. And so um, when I actually started in news, I just wanted to write. I had no intention of going into broadcast or broadcast television. It was several bosses along the way that kind of encouraged me in that direction. I'm very grateful to them because I then discovered how to cross those two loves of me being a news junkie with me also being kind of good at being calm under pressure in a performative kind of a setting. But I wasn't actually the one who originally set out with that goal. You mentioned multiple bosses. Was there a single inflection point where you actually were able to cross those two together? No, I think it was more of a gradual process. So, you know, I started working in radio, but behind the scenes, and I used to shadow the producer who sat next to me, she uh, was a very good friend of mine. Her name is Barnini and she used to produce one minute newscasts. So every hour or, or maybe even more frequently than that, she would write a one minute newscast script and one of the anchors would come up and would record the script that she had written up for them. And so because I wanted to write, I, after my shift was over, started shadowing Barnini with her permission. And she showed me how she did it and how she wrote to time and and broadcast writing versus long form, et cetera. And so I started writing my own scripts as if I was the producer and leaving them for my boss. And he would critique them in the morning when he came back and then leave them for me because I worked a late shift um, so that I could see the corrections that he'd made and and try again. And, and so my writing started to improve to the point where he said, listen, 
I know that you want to be a writer and your news judgment is great and your writing is great, but I really think you need to consider broadcast. You have the natural personality for it. You have the voice for it. Uh, And so what I want you to do is instead of writing these scripts and sending them to me, I want you to start recording the scripts as if you are the anchor. So after the actual anchor leaves and is done with their newscast, you go and you make your own reporting and you send that to me. And so I started doing that and he started critiquing my delivery. Uh, And that was kind of, he ended up putting me on air in radio for the very first time. I had a podcast before I even knew what a podcast was. Um, And that kind of built upon itself where when I then got hired to work uh, in print on um, doing editing for foxnews.com and in some cases reporting for them and so on, uh, I then, they eventually needed someone to do kind of these little clips on the network where you would come on and talk about what was happening, what foxnews.com was covering for the day. And so they needed someone to be the foxnews.com person to do that. And I ended up, at, you know, they tried a few people out first and I ended up being the one that they settled on. And so I became a part of this thing called the news whip where they would say now to the white house and now to weather and now to foxnews.com. And I became the foxnews.com person. Um, and then for good day, New York started asking me to come on to, talk about different stories that I was covering. And one thing led to another, and that eventually led to my first on-air contract at Fox Business Network. Uh, And I just kind of eventually decided I wanted to go back to talking about people, not talking about numbers. I was working somebody else's dream job, but not mine. And that's when I left and went to CBS New York to be the weekend anchor and weekday uh, reporter there. And again, it all just kind of snowballed and each step along the way, I think I got better and better as will be the case for most people in their careers to the point that even when I made it to ABC, I started seeing a um, speech coach to help me in my tracking voice, which is when you record something, the narration that goes over a news package. And she gave me some really quick tips that were mind blowing to me that you would think I would have already known by that point in my career But even today, I I still think of myself as a beginner and I still feel like I'm still learning. Diane, you're hitting on so many amazing gems here. You even mentioned a minute ago that so many people- I'm glad because I have no idea if I even answered your question. I don't don't care. The amount (laughs) amount of wisdom in that was was well worth it. You you even mentioned that so many people, like they get better in their career. So many people actually don't. Like the the year they start off is pretty much, they remain stagnant where you're touching on all of these little things that weren't actually part of your job requirement. But I don't know, you had like this inner drive to to go out there and be like, you know what? I'm actually going to start writing these and then I'm actually have someone give me some feedback on these. It's like you're constantly- in search of of better solutions and more feedback, which is something I really admire because so many people are unwilling to be like, you know what, I don't know. And, and you're like, you know what, I really don't. I need some help with this. This would be great for that feedback. I just think that's such a key point. I just really like want to hit on that. And, and so I'm tr- intrigued by all of this, kind of like seeing what's working on behind the scenes for you about like that drive, that desire. I want to know how you became interested in sleep. And, and I know this is something that, that you lived through. So I, I would love to just hear the story of how all of a sudden you became really intrigued by sleep. Well, it, interesting. It's it's a bit chronological from the last answer because it was when I I signed my first on air contract. I went from working kind of the late evening shift. You know, I would get out of work around midnight, around eleven p.m., sometimes one a.m. I then suddenly was starting my day at three a.m. 
And I am a natural night owl. And I think a lot of people don't know that whether you're a morning person or a night owl or something in between, that's not a choice. You're not a more responsible person because you wake up early in the morning and go to bed early. It's in your biology. And there are things you can do to influence that, but you have to know what they are and you have to know how to implement them. I knew none of this at the time. And so I've had a really hard time suddenly waking up that early in the morning and going to bed at a decent enough hour to get enough sleep before I had to wake up again. So I ended up in this cycle of not getting enough sleep. And I didn't really think much of it. And I started developing acid reflux, for example, and a few other things that I was suddenly having to medicate for and see doctors for. And I just never put the two together, that it was the lack of sleep that was causing all of these things. When I went to CBS New York, that 3 a.m. wake-up call turned into a 1.30 a.m. wake-up call. And that, for me, was just pure torture. At least once a week, I would tell myself I was going to quit because that's how bad I felt every day. I would go in. Waking up was horrible. I was exhausted all day. And all I could think about during my workday was how badly I just couldn't wait to be able to go to bed and go to sleep, which is really difficult in a job like that, too, because you have to be on. You're not only are you doing live television, but when the cameras are off in between the shows, you're running around trying to get interviews. You're knocking on people's doors. You're you know, you're using these kind of investigative instincts to try to put all the pieces together of this story that you're working on. And it's so hard to do that when you're just so mentally foggy and so focused on how tired you are. And then the catch was I would get home at 2, 3, 4, 5 p.m., depending on the day, and I couldn't go to sleep, no matter how hard I tried. I would lay in bed. I would try to lay perfectly still. I would do all these things, and I just could not fall asleep. And I would often end up falling asleep later than if I had just gone to bed at my normal hour instead of trying to go to bed early to make up for my sleep loss. And that just gets super frustrating. When I left CBS and came to ABC, it was to work the overnight shift. And that was something I swore I would never do because of sleep issues. But I loved the show so much. ABC's show called World News Now, which airs on the overnight, is this kind of really fun, a bit irreverent, out-of-the-box news show. This has this vibe to it that the bosses are all away and they actually let us use this studio, guys. And so it's really fun and you can have a lot of space to show your personality and have a good time. And when I watched the show, I just thought, I have to do this. So I did. And I absolutely loved it. Like, I'm not sure I will ever have a job as awesome as that one, except for the hours. And the interesting part is it wasn't working the overnight shift that bothered me. I would go in at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. I would leave at five or six in the morning. And again, because I'm a natural night owl, I could just tell myself this is like a really late night out and I could go to sleep. And I did fine until Good Morning America started asking me to come, asking me to come on at the end of my shift and do some segments for them, which was great for my career. And I was super happy about that and I'm still super grateful for it. But my sleep suffered tremendously because now I wasn't coming home at five or six in the morning. I was coming home at nine or 10 in the morning and then starting to sleep. And for my body clock, that was the worst. Not to mention, I just finished doing Good Morning America. My adrenaline is sky high. And now I'm like, okay, time to go to sleep. 
Um, so long story short, it just broke me. I would go what felt like days and sometimes weeks with the most minimal amount of sleep. And I got to a point where I was spending 12 hours a day in bed to try to get five hours, four hours, however much sleep I could possibly get. And it just, it rippled effect into everything, every aspect of my life, from my physical health to my mental health, to my emotional state. And, you know, I, and I, the more I read about sleep, the more I just got infused with this message that I was doomed if I didn't get those recommended eight hours. And so I started trying, I started trying all of these things to make my sleep better. And they just made my sleep worse. And so I, my, I went to my doctor, she prescribed Ambien and encouraged me to take it despite me being super hesitant about taking a sleeping pill. And the more I read about how doomed I was, the more and more I took that Ambien to fall asleep. And one day I took it and nothing happened. And I waited two weeks and I tried again and again, that, that magic pill that used to make me fall asleep in half an hour, no matter what, just stopped working. And when I called my doctor, her recommendation, who's wonderful, by the way, my doctor's recommendation was to up my dosage. She's like, well, you're just taking a half of the smallest dosage. So just take a full pill. But I just knew in that moment for me, that wasn't going to be the long-term solution. And so I kind of made, I decided right then and there that I'm going to figure this out. And by coincidence, I went to a dinner uh, where a sleep doctor was sort of presenting. Um, and then he ended up sitting right next to me. So we chatted, I told him kind of my story and where I was at that point. And the fact that I worked for this overnight show and that I was hoping to find someone who could kind of put me through this sleep boot camp, um, my words, not his, and, um, and see if they could make me better and document the whole process so that I could then show it to my viewers who are many of them struggling with sleep themselves because they're watching me in the middle of the night. Um, and we set out to do that. And after that, all these people started reaching out to me about their sleep problems and what to do. And we're talking everyone from strangers, viewers, celebrities backstage, and even some of my fellow colleagues. And so I started, because I was interested, giving them answers if I knew it already, because it was something that I had experienced or something I'd already researched. I would you know, answer them off the bat based on the knowledge I already had. And if it was something I didn't know about, then I started researching that because I was just suddenly curious and fascinated with the whole process. Uh, and so what that did for me was two things. It made me realize how prevalent sleep issues are in even the people who seem like they are perfect, they're poised, they're on television, they're rich, you name it. And, some, and even those people have sleep problems. So the prevalence became obvious to me. And then also I just kind of developed this growing body of knowledge in the area that I would then start emailing to people. So I started keeping a Google doc of all this sleep information that I had saved and based on whoever was emailing me about it or asking me about it, if they asked me in person, I'd say, I'll send you an email with lots of great information. And I would just kind of rearrange it, the order of what I was, of what I was sending them based on who was asking. Um, so for example, when Michael Strahan asked me, I know that he travels a lot 
for work because he does work on both coasts. So I put all the jet lag stuff on top. If somebody else asked me and uh, they told me that their problem was that they have a lot of racing thoughts when they go to sleep, I would put that stuff on the top, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of built on itself where enough people were like, you really should write a book on this after I sent them this whole, you know, long Google doc. And um, after, I don't know, maybe a year or so, something happened, something in me clicked that I suddenly decided like, yeah, I I do have to write a book on this because I started talking to more and more sleep experts who started expressing frustration at how different the information that was getting the most spotlight in television segments and sleep listicles, how all these sleep tips that get the most attention are often counterproductive when they actually see their patients in the office And the tips that they actually use, the tips that are shown in clinical research to be effective, don't get that attention. And it kind of circled back to my experience of when I accidentally solved my own sleep problems and just thought to myself, why isn't anybody talking about this stuff? So I finally decided to write the book that I wish had existed when I suffered from my own sleep problems. Yeah, it's always great when you see someone who who's solving their own problem, but then not only solves that problem, goes like incredibly deep and then starts starts helping other people with that problem. I, I just love seeing that play out in the real world. Uh, I'm wondering, why do you think it is that, that so many of those tips that don't actually work, why are they getting all, all the highlight and then all these ones that actually are really effective? Why, why do they just seem to go unknown? Uh, two reasons, I think. One... Uh, the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy is what happens in a lab, right? You're under perfect, in a perfect scenario, in a vacuum, how does A and B equal C? And I think there's a big difference often, particularly when it comes to sleep science in what the results are in a lab versus what the results are when you then apply them to real people who are out in the real world with real concerns, living real lives. And those two things don't always match. And it also depends on what your problem is. And often sleep prescriptions are given in this very general format as if everyone has the same root cause to their sleep problems. And that's just not true. So I think, uh, you know, a good example of this is the discussion around blue light, right? You always hear screens, 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 screen time is bad because screens emit blue light. Blue light simulates daylight and that is bad for sleep. So you have to swear off screens at least X hours before bedtime in order to sleep better. That is all true. The science there is accurate. However, that's not taking into account the fact that screens are often how people unwind at night, right? You ask a good sleeper what they do to go to sleep. And it's usually, I don't know, I just watch TV and then I go to bed. But if you take a bad sleeper and suddenly you fill them with all this information about blue light and screens, now they start trying to take all the screens out of their evening. And now they have nothing better to do in the evening, but worry about their sleep. And those worries are much more powerful in damaging your sleep than whatever small amount of blue light you're getting from your TV or your phone at night. And so this advice isn't wrong, but it often is then misinterpreted by people who are taking it in and they go to great lengths to try to fix their sleep and it ends up backfiring them. I call these bedtime backfires and screen time is, is one of them where the blue light part, it's so easy to talk about that. It sounds really sciencey. It's straightforward. And so it makes for a really good quick tip on a listicle or a quick tip in a, in a television segment. 
when you start talking about the the anxiety that often causes insomnia, that gets a little more tricky. It's a little bit more complicated, but that is the root cause for most people who have insomnia. And deleting all of your screens from your evening routine is more likely to make that worse than better. Yeah. I mean, sleep like life is really nuanced. We can't just expect like this one sentence to solve everything. You mentioned everyone obviously is going to have different sleep issues and many people are unaware of the actual sleep issues they are having. But is there like a starting place for anyone who's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm having trouble with sleep. Like where do they even begin in this process? Um, it's hard to answer. And I don't want to be that person that's like, well, you'll find the answer in my book. But it, chapter one of my book is identifying the problem. And what it does is it lays out these kind of quick summaries of what the most common sleep disorders are and red flags to look out for. And I think having just that basic knowledge can already get you started on the right foot because now, you know, my mother, for example, read it and my mother has always struggled with insomnia in her own words. When she read it, she realized, oh, this this restless leg syndrome thing that you talk about, I think I have that. And I asked her if she'd ever gone to the doctor for it. And she said that, you know, she did. She voiced it several times. They tested her for blood clots, didn't find any blood clots and sent her home with a diagnosis of your leg is fine. And so just reading a paragraph in my book about restless leg syndrome made her realize like, oh, that is either what's keeping me awake or at least one of the things keeping me awake. And I think a lot of people reading the book will have that experience where they may just think that they have insomnia or maybe they don't even think they have insomnia. And in reading these descriptions in the way that I wrote them, I tried to do it in a way that someone reading it would have this aha moment if it applied to them. So I think one is it's great to just get yourself even just slightly familiar with some of the more common sleep disorders because they're much more common than you think. You might think restless leg syndrome, never even heard of that. I definitely don't have that. But these things are very common. Same for sleep apnea, even narcolepsy. It's much more subtle than people think it is in the movies. And so you could absolutely have narcolepsy and not know that you have it. Um, and the other, the other, you can also keep a sleep diary, which is one of the tips in the book, which is just sort of keeping a log of when you fell asleep, what your sleep issues are, and you're just kind of keeping track. And when you look at it on a whole, you may start to notice patterns and what's keeping you awake and what isn't. Maybe you have a hard time sleeping every time you try to go to bed early or when your schedule changes or when you eat a big meal before bed, you know, you may, certain things may stick out to you. Um, but I love sort of the, the quick tip on this. I love the question, what changed from when I slept well to now? Hmm. And often that will start to lead you down the right path. Did you sleep fine before you moved, let's say, and now you don't sleep well? Because maybe there's an issue in your sleep environment that's causing you to wake up. Uh, if Did your work schedule change and now you're having a hard time sleeping? Maybe there's something in your circadian rhythm. Your body clock is telling you to sleep and wake up on a different schedule than your new work schedule is demanding that you sleep and wake up. And so you can start there. Is your mind racing when you go to bed and you just can't seem to quote unquote, shut off your thoughts before you go to sleep. That's kind of textbook insomnia. You can start with something like CBTI. And so that question of what changed can both help lead you in the right direction of what the problem is. And perhaps even more helpful in the very beginning of all this, it can help rule out what the problem isn't. Hmm. 
Hmm. Right. If you used to watch TV before bed and you fell asleep, fine, then TV wasn't the problem. You do not have to now stop watching TV in order to sleep well. If you always had that morning cup of coffee and you slept well, unless you started taking some new medication or going on maybe a new birth control or something else that might mess with your caffeine sensitivity, then there's no reason to suspect that that morning cup of coffee is causing your sleep problems. So caffeine should not be where you start. And so I think that simple question um, can help to narrow down what the problem might be, what the problem might not be. So you can start off this process in a more efficient way by at least starting to address causes, root causes, as opposed to just these extra things that aren't going to make much of a difference, but might be really hard to work on. Yeah, that question, like you mentioned, is simple, but really profound. And it's all about getting those root causes as opposed to just like these these clickbait type things that all of a sudden someone thinks, all right, I got to eliminate all screens, which isn't the case. One thing you hit on, and I actually received a number of questions from listeners who, who are hoping we just dive into this a little bit, and that is around actually that overactive mind. So, so people who wake up in the middle of the night, minds racing a million miles per minute, anything that, that we could think about, it's kind of funny. I actually sleep really, really well. Uh, last night, my wife was out with friends. She came back much later. Uh, I already been asleep, woke up. My mind was going for like two hours straight. Any, any advice? I, I know I need to be doing my own research on this, but, but how could someone approach that? Um, well, if it happens, if it happens all the time, if you're one of those people who generally dozes off on the couch or starts dozing, and then as soon as you get to bed, your mind starts racing and you have no idea why. Something called conditioned arousal is most likely happening. And essentially, you spend so much time awake and worrying in bed that your brain has learned to associate bed as the place where we stay awake and worry. Hmm. And so now bed becomes a cue for wakefulness. It becomes a cue to stay awake and worry instead of becoming a cue to fall asleep, to relax and fall asleep. And so one of the things you want to do if this happens to you regularly is kind of divorce that association. You want to retrain your brain that bed is where we sleep and we do our worrying somewhere else. Um, And one of the things that helps both to do that, but also can help for just what you're describing sounds like something that just happens every now and then. So you may not have that association, but this tip will also help you in that moment. And it's something called constructive worry, or I like to call it a worry list or a brain dump. Super simple. Take a notebook, divide a page down the center, or just use one page and then the other. On the left side, you're going to write down everything that's on your mind. So you say you wake up with racing thoughts. Maybe it's an idea for a podcast you're going to do tomorrow or or an article you want to write. Or maybe it's just, oh, I forgot to plug that leak under the sink. I got to figure that out. Whatever it is, you write it down. And then on the right side of the page, you write down the very next step to resolving that issue. You might not even know what the ultimate solution to it is if it's a big thing that's weighing on your mind. But maybe the next step is to call a friend who will know more about it than you do or do some research on a on a website that you know might have an answer for you. It can be anything. And if you do know the resolution, you know, leak under the sink, I got to call the plumber. Great, right? Call the plumber on the right-hand side of the page. If it's something that has no resolution, maybe it's something hypothetical that you're worried about. You write down accept and move on because that's ultimately what you have to do. When you're done, you can't think of anything else that's on your mind and you've filled in your accept and move ons and your next step to all the resolutions, you're done. And this sounds 
kind of stupid. When I first heard it, I thought Ambien doesn't put me to sleep anymore, but this notebook to-do list thing is going to, but it works really well. And, and one of the reasons is if you're the type of person who goes and goes and goes all day, which I absolutely was and still to some degree am, you're not really giving your brain a chance to process your thoughts and feelings about what happened on the day. And it's a perfectly normal thing for us to want to reflect on what happened that day and, and what that means to us. And so if you have no opportunity to do it the rest of the day, because you're just, you know, operating at a mile a minute the whole day, the only opportunity you really give your brain to do that is when you lay in bed. So of course, that's when you start thinking about, oh, that conversation I had earlier, that really didn't go so well. Why did I say that? And whatever, anything else that comes to mind, oh, what am I going to be for Halloween in six months? Um, And if you, by doing this exercise before you go to bed, you're giving your brain a place to worry so that it doesn't have to do that in bed. The other part of it is by doing that, that kind of mental autopilot feature that taught your brain that bed is a place where we worry and stay awake. Well, that starts to kick in. And now that mental autopilot recognizes that, oh, this is the place where we worry now, not when my head hits the pillow. There's also something to the repetitive thoughts that we get when we're going to sleep that work by memory. So if I gave you a phone number to remember and you couldn't write it down, you'd probably repeat it to yourself over and over again in order to remember it. It's the natural way that our brain remembers things when we don't have a better alternative. And so often we'll get repetitive thoughts at night because our brain is trying to remember to deal with that thing in the morning. So if you wrote it down, you know that it's now on the page and you don't have to keep repeating it to yourself consciously or subconsciously. And then There's also just an element to the exercise that gears you towards solutions. Often, if you have trouble sleeping over and over again, you you start to take on some catastrophic thinking at night Mm -hmm. and things can really feel devastating and it can make you stuck in the problems where it just feels like there's no way out. So you just repeat those problems over and over to yourself and that keeps you awake. In doing this exercise, you you start to realize, oh, there are solutions, there are next steps, there are ways out of these things that are on my mind. And that just generally helps to turn the temperature down on those anxieties. It helps to calm you down, and, and which is beneficial not just for sleep, but just for your general mental health and well-being. Uh, I know so many people who this has helped, but in talking to all of the sleep clinicians that I interviewed for the book, they also agreed that this is just a much more effective relaxation exercise than a lot of the typical relaxation techniques you often hear about in kind of sleep articles and whatnot. So I highly recommend if your problem is that kind of racing mind to try this exercise for at least two to three weeks. And usually after that point, your brain kind of just gets the memo somehow and you don't really need to do it anymore. You just start doing it automatically. And then you just save the notebook in your nightstand for, you know, a particular bad day. Uh, But yeah, notebook exercise, super cheap. You don't, you know, all you need is a notebook and a pen. You don't need to spend a whole lot of money and you will be surprised how helpful that can be. Yeah, well, it's funny enough. So the first half of my night of sleep, I actually did use the constructive worry technique just before I went to bed. I just had a topic I wanted to discuss with you. And so I wrote that down passed right out, out for a few hours, then wife comes home, that's been the mind, but I didn't use that technique in the middle of the night, which I should have. Two other things uh, a lot of people are interested about hearing about is both alcohol and cannabis. And I know like, well, everyone's saying, all right, when I have a few glasses of wine, I feel much better when I sleep, I seem more relaxed. 
any any light you can shine to this? I know these are super complicated topics. I'm just wondering what you've learned in some of your research thus far. Yeah, so alcohol is the number one sleep aid worldwide, which is bad news because I'm sorry to break it to everybody, but alcohol is a terrible sleep aid. And it's a very deceptive one. And, and here's why. When we drink, initially, alcohol helps to uh, lower our core body temperature and it helps to um, raise our adenosine levels. And it does a number of things that essentially help our sleep. So when you drink, you actually fall asleep more easily. Sometimes drink enough, you'll even pass out, right? Um, and especially for someone who has difficulty falling asleep, the appeal of that is so strong. And I can identify with that because I can remember having just one more drink at, you know, happy hour before going to bed purely because I knew that it would help me pass out. And I, I just really craved the ability to just go to bed and go to sleep quickly and not have to stay awake and worry and do the whole thing that I did uh, traditionally. The problem is what happens after, as you start to sober up, your body temperature rhythm gets thrown off your adenosine levels, which help make you sleepy. They kind of go completely out of whack and lots of other things happen in your biology that then wake you up, whether they fully wake you up or they just kind of disrupt your sleep and put you in a really light stage of sleep. Your sleep is being disrupted, whether you realize it or not. And this is why for some of us, in my case, I will actually wake up heart racing, in just a complete disarray. Um, and then I can't fall back asleep. Some people, again, might experience this in a much more subtle way. So they don't realize the alcohol is disrupting your sleep. But if you were to actually look at your sleep quality on a monitor, you would see that it's just atrocious. And so alcohol is tricky in that way because it makes you think it's helping your sleep when actually it's not. And for people who have um, chronic insomnia, one of the scientists that I spoke to said that sleep damaging effect actually doesn't even happen right away. So for chronic insomniacs who start drinking initially the first few days, the alcohol may genuinely help their sleep, but then it doesn't. Then all these effects start to kick in and their solution often is to drink more alcohol, not realizing that it's actually the alcohol that's doing the damage. So none of this is to say that we all need to stop drinking completely immediately if we want to sleep well. I still drink recreationally. I enjoy a cocktail on the weekend, just like I'm sure most people out there. Um, and so you don't have to go to these extremes in order to sleep well. But instead of me now using alcohol as a tool to help my sleep, I now try to do certain things to mitigate its impact on my sleep instead. And the, the, the most obvious one, but the best one is time. Just give yourself enough time to sober up before you go to bed and your sleep will benefit tremendously. Eating while you drink can help. Uh, eating before you drink, I should say, or while you drink can help uh, because when alcohol is in the stomach, it processes more slowly. The stomach absorbs alcohol more slowly than your intestine does. And so if you have food in your stomach, then your stomach valve is closed because your stomach has to work to digest your food before it then passes it on to the intestine. If you're on an empty stomach and you just drink liquids, they'll go straight to your intestine and your intestine sucks all that alcohol up super quick. You get drunk a lot faster. And now that's a problem, obviously, when you go to go to sleep. You want to stay hydrated. 
which, you know, in college that used to be, and we would drink all night and then we would come home and we would chug a gallon of water and go to sleep. That's really not the answer, but if you can focus on staying hydrated while you're drinking, that can also help. Um, and the, the one that I like that's, that's less obvious is realize that the alcohol will have this impact on your sleep where your sleep barrier, the barrier to interrupting your sleep is much lower than it will be when you're sleeping without the alcohol. So in order to limit the potential that something else is going to disrupt and wake you up, a noise that otherwise wouldn't, let's say, or a light that otherwise wouldn't, try to prep your sleep environment before you go out for the night. If you don't feel like putting your sleep mask on your nightstand or setting your sound machine on before you leave, you're definitely going to want, not going to want to do it when you get home at two in the morning and you've had a few drinks. So prep your sleep environment before you go, lower the blackout shades, put your sleep mask out, put a sound machine on. Even if these are things you don't normally do, it can help you sleep under the influence of alcohol because it will at least prevent outside factors from waking you up as easily. Speaking about those factors, I think you mentioned one of the doctors you talked to uh, talking about the color in your room or the light actually. Um, mm -hmm. The test is hold hold your hand in front of your face if you can see it. I think he said there's too much light. Am I remembering yeah. that one correctly? No, you're right, you're okay. right. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Chris Winter. Um, and he's not the only person, since then I've heard other sleep experts offer that tip as well. And we all have different light sensitivities. So some people may be able to sleep with more light in the room and not have problem. I am extremely light sensitive. Um, and so that is one of the things that I know is a big trigger for me. So I need all lights banished, especially if I'm going to be doing something that's going to lower my, my, the, the barrier to interrupting my sleep. Um, but I, I do want to also add one more thing to the answer um, about the alcohol. Again, because we're all different, the best way that you can see how alcohol is affecting your sleep is by testing it out. Go two weeks without drinking anything and see how you feel. If you feel the same as you did before and you're like, well, that was that was kind of useless. I want to go back to drinking my you know wine at dinner or whatever then fine. You conducted your own experiment on yourself and you have determined that whatever the trade-off is, is not worth it for the joy you get out of your glass of wine at dinner. But you may find in doing your little, you know, sober two weeks, oh, wow, I feel so much better. I'm suddenly waking up more refreshed. I feel more energetic, et cetera, et cetera. And so maybe for you, it is worth the trade-off to either give it up entirely or cut back a bit or focus on drinking it earlier in the day so you're not drinking so close to bedtime. We all have to make these decisions for ourselves, right? So I don't want, I tried not to write a book that was preaching to people that, oh, you really shouldn't drink alcohol or you really shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. I'm trusting everybody to be adults and make their own decisions for what's best for them. But I want to offer people the tools to mitigate the negative impacts of some of these things if they are going to go ahead and indulge. Yeah, that's one of the things I actually really enjoyed about the book is that you did shine light on these things, but it wasn't like, this is what you have to be doing. This is what you should be doing. You just shine light on it, which I'm really appreciative of because all of us had need to experiment on our own. Uh, I've got one more left. I know we're going to wrap up here in a minute. I would love to know, though, uh, around cannabis. Do we experience similar effects as with alcohol or is it one of those things that actually does help improve sleep quality for the majority of people? So cannabis is far less studied. So I feel a little uh, less equipped to talk about it, but I do address it in the book with one of the lead researchers on this topic. And what he found in his study, which at the time had not been published yet, um, what he found at the time was even people who come 
and say that they were taking cannabis or using cannabis, I should say, uh, in order to help their sleep, all of them, when actually monitored in a sleep lab, all of them had um, what would be considered a significant, I, I don't, I, I'm going to botch the, the phrasing that he used, but essentially they all slept badly. Whatever their metric is for what is considered sleeping badly, they all hit it. So all these people that were like, oh, I take cannabis because it helps me sleep well. None of them were actually sleeping well on cannabis. The interesting part is when they then removed the cannabis from the picture, they started sleeping worse. But after a short period of this kind of what, what's often called rebound insomnia, they then got better. And I think most, if not all of them, the large majority of them, got eventually to a point where they were sleeping much better than they were when they initially came in and said, I sleep better. I take cannabis because it helps me sleep well. So for those people, at least in that study, the effects of cannabis were the opposite of what they thought. But it's deceptive because once you get into a pattern of using it and then you stop using it, you sleep badly and you assume that, oh, well, that's because the cannabis was making me sleep well, when actually you're just experiencing this kind of rebound insomnia. And if you're able to push through it, you will see that actually the, the cannabis was being, was, 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 I don't want to say damaging to your sleep, but that's, I guess that's the best word in this case that I can think of. The cannabis is not actually helping your sleep. It's, it's damaging your sleep a bit. And if you're able to push through that rebound insomnia, you will then start sleeping better than you were when you were using it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, deceptive. And so many of the things around sleep are deceptive, which is why I love just the number of studies, insights, articles, and, and techniques we can use uh, in terms of helping improve our sleep. So I, I know the listeners are really gonna be intrigued about uncovering the problems they're experiencing and then techniques they can fix them. So the book is The Sleep Fix. It's out December 14th. Anything else you want the listeners to know about the book? Obviously, everything's gonna be linked up. Just wanna make sure we, we leave the, the floor open for you. I just want people to know that none of these things are black and white. I mean, we just talked about how cannabis can hurt your sleep. But if you're a cancer patient, for example, and you're using cannabis to curb nausea that's keeping you awake, then whatever damage the cannabis is doing is nothing most likely compared to the benefit it's giving you. And that's going to help your sleep. So a lot of it is the reason I wrote the book the way that I did is I want people to understand why things work why certain things hurt your sleep so they can do the math on what makes the most sense for them. And, and that's really the key is often when you look at these issues to kind of look at them on a whole, look at your own life and realize how this is going to benefit me, what the negative impacts are going to be and use that information to make the best choice for you. Oh, that's great. Diane, this has been a lot of fun. Final one though. Uh, if you were to do this long form conversation with anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love just getting to spend an evening with just asking them anything you wanted? Oh, I'm so bad at these questions. Um, <laughs> Esther Perel comes to mind just because I recently read um, one of her books and I've seen her talk. I just find her so fascinating. She's a, a relationship expert. But when you listen to her, you learn so much more about just relationships that I would love to pick her brain because I bet that sleep plays a lot into a lot of the issues that she deals with, whether she realizes it or not. And so I would love for her take on how this all folds into relationships because often they're integrated in everything that we do is, is what we do with our partner. And you share a bed every night with your partner most of the time. So, uh, so sleep is an integral part uh, of that as well. I'd love to pick her brain on it. That's great. Well, Diane, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. 
Thank you so much for having me, Sean. I hope I made uh, any sense there. Again, hashtag mom brain. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.